Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Eliza Weeks. Today, we'll be talking to Caitlin Bird about her new book, Real Southern Barbecue, Constructing Authenticity in Southern Food Culture, published in 2019 by Lexington Press. Caitlin Bird is lecturer in sociology and visiting scholar at the National Center for Institutional Diversity at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. It's really a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Well, Eliza and I are really interesting interlocutors for this project, I think, because we come from really different backgrounds, uh, both interested in food, but I come from a literature and rhetoric and Southern studies um, kind of position. And Eliza is has a food studies degree, um, but her interests are storytelling and oral history and food entrepreneurship. So I think we came to the book from these different points of view, but I think we still both found a lot. Uh, to enjoy for each of our specific backgrounds. Um, And your background is sociology. So I'm always really interested in how food studies is so interdisciplinary. Um, All of the different languages and lenses of our home fields really cause us to see the same things like authenticity or restaurants uh, in such subtly different ways. It's really very exciting. It is. Um, Yeah. My advisors both came or studied culture through music, um, mainly country music. Um, so it was interesting when I approached them with a food topic. <laughs> They're like, um, we're not sure, but okay. If you say the theory works, then we believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense then, um, why you drew on some of that background, kind of just set up your idea of what authenticity is. All right. Okay. So Caitlin, I, or Kat, I'd love if you would tell us about your academic and professional background and just how you came to food studies and Southern barbecue as a topic for your research. Well, um, so I started looking at food really for my, um, when I was working on my doctorate and it all started, um, I was with a friend at a restaurant and they advertised themselves as a modern, authentic Southern restaurant. and it was just like, what does that even mean? Like, we're talking about like modern authenticity, all in the scope of this kind of Southern food idea when the menu was so broad and diverse that nothing about it screamed Southern, at least in the ways people typically think of food of the South. And it just started this kind of spiral into, um, as a sociologist, foods, researching food is so often limited to kind of hunger or obesity, um, agriculture, those types of things, the actual meaning behind food um, really isn't as common. Um, There's a lot more of meaning in music and that side of culture, which is why a lot of the theoretical grounding in the book really comes from um, sociology of culture, specifically a lot of research on music and art. And then barbecue ended up just being, um, I don't really, it just kind of happened. Um, I was trying to figure out a dissertation topic and I found the um, Southern Foodways Alliance has an oral history archive. And I was just kind of looking through it one day, trying to see what stories were interesting um, 
and barbecue kept jumping out over and over again. And I was like, okay, well, let me dive into these oral histories. And that's how this book at least came to be. Yeah, well, you kind of talked about how sociology is often problem focused, right? The problems of food and eating. But I wonder what you think your, like, what kind of gap does your book fill in the field, either of sociology or food studies, or that that intersection of the both? Um, I think it really fills this idea, fills this gap of kind of authenticity as impression management is so heavily discussed in music, um, but there's so little that talks about it in terms of food. And yet a lot of these same lessons that scholars have been talking about how impression management works for music and for singers and songwriters applies to restaurant owners and chefs as well. Um, And that's really kind of what I tried to do in this pro- in this book um, specifically was take that literature that um, is so heavily focused on music and then apply it to food as so southern food of course specifically great so sort of back on the topic of authenticity specifically um, the overall thesis of the book that we began to understand is that barbecue as a cultural product has a unique relationship to the idea of authenticity. And there are some pretty clearly defined elements that seem to make it easy for diners to decide if their barbecue is authentic. But like all cuisines, barbecue has to respond to the world around it in ways that might challenge traditional definitions of authenticity. So before we really go too deep, take a deep dive in all this. Can you start by explaining what you think authenticity is? Um, I think authenticity kind of at the most broadest level is just something that's, is believed to be real. Um, And of course, other scholars, um, specifically Johnson and Bauman, really break down what authenticity can be into kind of these measurable tenets and things like it needs to be original, it needs to be sincere. Um, uh, the product needs to be embedded with some sort of story that is unique to its producer. Um, I think all of that kind of summarizes to be this idea that whatever the final product is, is a real representation of the product. And yet with authenticity, there's never one true authentic anything. Um, It's not like we're talking about a Monet painting that we can go and say like, yes, this is the original painting that was done. Food doesn't last that long. And even if we're talking about a recipe, two chefs cooking the same recipe are going to end up with two different results. So the idea of authenticity, while it is somewhat fixed as this, for instance, in the book, um, the producers could easily agree that smoke was involved in authentic barbecue. But because authenticity changes as the kind of constructions and structure around it change, then other things can evolve. For example, living in a city that doesn't allow open pit smokers. So how do you maintain that authenticity linked to smoke if the law in your area makes the traditional method impossible? And the pitmasters do a really good job of kind of explaining how do they navigate these changing, not just consumer demands, 
but this changing relationship between the consumer, the producer, the farmers, all to create this product that is authentic, even if authenticity is kind of this constantly moving target. Like there's not just like we can't say there's one real authentic barbecue because then that would totally ignore the regional variations that make barbecue so unique. Right. And when you talk about this sort of relationship that's created between the consumers and producers and authentic products, you use verbs like constructing, fabricating, and consuming when talking about authenticity. Could you say a little bit more about the differences between those different verbs? Yes. So the theoretical framework in the book um, draws heavily on Richard Peterson's work called Fabricating Authenticity. And it looks specifically at country music. Um, So that's where a lot of these kind of verbs come from in this idea that um, the process of creating authenticity or the impression management that's involved is this constant kind of reciprocal process between the producers, the consumers, and the other kind of outside structural factors. And that all three of these things are continually working together and evolving to create what is seen as authentic and what will subsequently be profitable. Because I mean, just like with um, the country music artists that um, inspired the original theory, they're restaurant owners, they have profit lines to manage. And this balance of authenticity is a way to help do that in the same way being seen as an authentic country singer in Peterson's work was a way to be financially successful. Yeah. And and so when I write about authenticity, I use the word inventing and I think they're not different. (laughs) I did think it was interesting how there are some subtle differences, I think, between inventing it and constructing it and fabricating it. But I think the ideas, uh, essentially, we agree, right, on the idea that authenticity is not a category on its own, but something that you use or make for your own profit when necessary. You already started using the word impression management, and I think that would be a good one for you to define next. So how, what does that word mean? Where does it come from? And what does it entail as far as a process for those producers? So um, impression management as a term really goes back to Irving Goffman's work. And it's kind of this intermesh of almost social psychology. Um, and it's the idea kind of at the most basic level that as people were concerned how other people see us and we're constantly managing the impression we want other people to have of us. So as a professor, the way I act in front of the classroom is going to be very different than the way I act when I'm with my friends from college who I lived with for three years, but it's still, I'm the same person, but the impression I want to give, I need to manage in different situations. And How this plays out for restaurant owners is um, especially when problems arise. So, for example, if um, really the best example is if you live in a space that doesn't allow open pit smokers, um, how do you manage the impression consumers have of your restaurant as authentic barbecue if you're not allowed to have an open pit? Um, And that's where we start to see shifts to well, they're still using the same recipes or they're not using anything processed or they're sourcing um, 
pigs or vegetables from a local farmer. So they're still authentic, but because of the structural changes around them, what they have to do something different to manage that impression of authenticity. So I like your um, the phrase inventing authenticity. It's very, very much the same kind of idea behind it, this constructing or inventing this constant changing of authenticity to be real, but there's never one fixed real, um, at least in the case of food. I think it's really interesting in particular when you're trying to find authentic or when you're looking at authenticity as it pertains to people's stories. And so you talked a lot about, or you started when we were talking about um, sort of your methods, uh, mentioning that you use the Southern Foodways Alliance Oral Histories Archive. And it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about the resource and what it is and where it is and what's been done with it. So so far, or maybe you're the first person who's really delved into that collection? Um, so the archive is housed at the University of Mississippi um, in their Southern Studies program, specifically the um, Southern Foodways Alliance. And what they do is they have funding to just go across the South and collect people's stories. Um, and they're all then transcribed and preserved in this archive that's freely available to use. Um, as far as what's been done with it, uh, it's mostly journalist or kind of journalistic type research or writings that will highlight these oral histories. Um, but that's where I've seen them used the most is kind of in these more, um, more journalistic or um, people who are affiliated with the center itself um, that feature it in uh, the work that they do. But as far as outside people using it, I'm not totally sure. Um, at least from the communication I've had with them, it seems like it's minimal. Can you talk a little bit about how you specifically used the um, oral histories in your book? So, Or how you analyzed them? So um, I treated the oral histories basically the same way that I would treat interview data. Um, I read through just a really kind of brief idea of how I approach them. Um, I read through all of the oral histories three times in their entirety. Um, the first, just to become familiar with them and start to kind of pick up on major themes. And then the second and third time with a more kind of focused eye on the themes I'd identified, um, the recurring trends that I saw in them. I don't use... Um, any of the qualitative software that's out there right now. Um, part of that was just because I felt that since I hadn't been the one to conduct these interviews or these oral histories, that if I relied on a software, it would be somewhat of a disservice um, to the stories that they were telling because I wasn't the one to actually conduct them. So to make myself more familiar with them. Um, and so much of Southern storytelling, um, as I'm sure both of you find in your work, is that it's like you can't, it's very difficult to just pull pieces from these oral histories. You lose so much of the story that is, in, that is telling you what you really want to look for, but it's very difficult to get a Southerner to answer a question briefly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, it really in the next chapter is when you get specific about the landscape of barbecue, and you've already kind of mentioned regional differences, but what are those key determinants of authenticity in, in the barbecue discourse? 
what what are diners looking for to kind of make their judgment of authenticity? Um, talk a little bit about some of those things. Um, so one of the things that came up the most was the kind of regional specificity that we see with barbecue. And um, for example, sauce types was one of the ones that came up a lot. And probably because it's the most kind of visible and most people are aware of the sauce variations in barbecue. Eastern North Carolina is the vinegar pepper. Um, South Carolina has a mustard based. Western North Carolina has a tomato based. Parts of Alabama have a mayonnaise based, which I had no idea about until I started reading these oral history. Um, but the sauces as well as the cuts of meat were continuously mentioned as how that unless you wanted to call your if you wanted to call yourself a Eastern North Carolina barbecue restaurant in Eastern North Carolina, then you needed to have you needed to meet certain expectations, and among those was having um, a vinegar pepper based sauce for example. Um, and one of the other ways that became really, that was talked about a lot was that these recipes are passed down for generations. Um, their family recipes, especially um, either the sauce recipe or side dishes or desserts. Um, again, most barbecue restaurants don't just sell meat and sauce. The sides are important as well. And for some restaurants, that was one of the places where they could really claim that their food was better than a competitor's food was that they didn't use any processed. Um, none of their side dishes were processed. They made them all fresh. Um, they made them all using their grandmother's recipes. Um, but all of these things became um important, especially the sauces and the cuts of meat for understanding what this kind of landscape of barbecue, if we actually want to talk about how it would map onto the South as a whole, mm -hmm. um, would be. And there was some variation in, like another example that wasn't talked about a lot in the book was the type of wood. Mm -hmm. And that some areas varied a little bit just because of what was available and what they would get from local farms or um, people that just had wood that they needed to get rid of. And um, that made it a little easier for them to have, to be more flexible, but also still drawing on this local community that their restaurant was a part of. Well, and with all of that in mind, all of those ways that, that people seem to already know how to make these determinations of authenticity, do you think the barbecue is exceptional in this conversation or does it follow the same rules as cornbread and biscuits or pasta or um, Italian regional dishes? Or do you think there's anything special about it? Maybe that's a hard question. Um, I guess yes and no. So I would say yes in the sense that if we look at the U.S. specifically, I don't know if there would be another cuisine that you could map onto a region the way you can barbecue but I think the I think the comparison with Italian food um, is probably very appropriate um, because 
Italy, whereas in the U.S., we think it's like, oh, it's pizza and spaghetti. But when you actually go to Italy, it's completely different. Like every region has different dishes and different cuisines. And I think those same variations could be set of barbecue. Um, and I think a lot of other countries would probably have Chinese food, for example. Um, Chinese food in the U.S. as compared to Chinese food that's in China or even more recent iterations of Chinese food that actually highlights this regional variation that was present um, that may or may not translate when it comes to a Chinese restaurant in the U.S. And I think barbecue very much is the same way. Um, the idea of the variations in barbecue that growing up in the South seem to be almost taken for granted um, that may or may not hold for someone who will maybe not have, maybe didn't eat barbecue or lived in an area where if you went to a barbecue restaurant, you got five or six different sauces and they were all different variations of those regional um, specifications that we're used to. A theme that we saw throughout the book was the idea of managing perceptions on the part of chefs and restaurant owners. And it seemed to us that it was sort of a conversation between both chefs and consumers alike. Um, could you say a little bit more about how these parties work together to define authentic barbecue? And I guess more um, specifically, if it's up to the producer or the consumer or chef um, to determine this? So I think it's, kind of this interplay between the two but how much of it is like they're sitting down talking to each other about it um I think it's more of this kind of almost imagined conversation between chefs and consumers so um for example what's selling well on a menu as opposed to what's not um are consumers coming in and asking for the like healthy options or for salads on a menu that may or may not currently have them? Um, I think that's where we start to see a lot of this kind of interplay between the two. Um, and also, we so in 2018, um, a barbecue restaurant won a James Beard Award for the first time. So Whereas most of the restaurants in this book, they haven't won any major national awards. Um, not like not talking about like barbecue competition awards, like actual kind of these major powerful arbitrators that are seen as being experts about what good restaurants look like. Um, it wasn't until 2018 that Rodney Scott's barbecue restaurant won an award. And his was the first, um, he was the first pit master ever to win this national award that's seen as being the most prestigious U.S.-based food award. Um, but at the same time, it's not uncommon to see um, maybe Southern Living or Food and, um, food and Wine magazine talk about, um, especially in their travel sections, like, oh, here's this great restaurant to go to when you're visiting Memphis. Um, but I think it's all kind of this, I don't know if I would say there's actual like concrete conversations going on between chefs and consumers. Um, 
as much as it's more of this kind of imagined conversation. And that really goes back to this idea of impression management. It's not necessarily that these conversations are ever actually happening as much as it is how is the how are the producer and the consumer responding to this kind of perceived other? Um, so what does a chef think their customer wants? Um, and it can be um, being aware of food trends that are going on, like the current rise of the like farm to table and local and the resurgence of heritage breeds, um, pigs. But then we also have to ask, even if your consumers want heritage breed, heritage breed pigs for barbecue, are they willing to pay the price that is associated with that? And for most for most chefs, even though the demand is there, they're not willing. <laughs> the demand that um, the price that would have to be charged for that wouldn't match. Yeah, we thought it was really interesting that your book kind of took a slightly different approach from some of the other barbecue stories that we've encountered. Um, you do touch a lot on issues of gender and race as important to that conversation as you go. But the next two chapters focus on health and environmental impact, both of barbecue and also working on barbecue. Uh, and those I've, I don't think I've ever heard anyone treat those two particular topics um, in conversation with barbecue. So what led you to those topics? Is that something that emerged as a theme from the oral histories or is that an interest that you brought to the project? So part of the, a little bit of both. Um, so when I started this project, I thought that there would be a lot about gender and race because very much like what you said, that's what a lot of their books about barbecue talk about. But the more I got into these oral histories, the more it's not that gender and race wasn't discussed, but it, other things were discussed more. And some of, and two of those major things were health concerns, um, especially consumers increasing demand for healthy foods, and then environmental impacts of barbecue. And for both of these, um, and this goes back to, it's not uncommon, especially for, as a sociologist, health and agriculture and environment are two more popular areas that are commonly discussed um, in relation to food. But it seemed like there was this disconnect between what I was reading about barbecue and then what my field was talking about in terms of food. but as I went through these oral histories, there was plenty there. And these, these pit masters are talking about these issues. Um, I just, as you mentioned, I just hadn't seen either group talk to each other about these issues. Um, so that's why both end up being a decent, decent portion of the kind of mid part of this book um, was that there's a lot more to Southern food that resonates across disciplinary lines. But sometimes when we're just looking at books from one discipline, we're going to lose some of these stories because that may just not be what that discipline's focus is. 
In chapter three, you really explore the healthfulness of barbecue um, and sort of the differing perceptions of it, that on one hand, it could be a comfort food and then sort of, quote unquote, unhealthy. But there's also a really convincing argument that barbecue is also an original farm to table, tail to snout cuisine. Um, You note that restaurateurs are embracing this sort of vegetable centric, lean meat farm to table movement as part of their impression management. So how is this change in market taste challenging the authenticity of barbecue? And what are producers doing in response to that? So I think this is one of the areas where we really see that challenges to authenticity seem to breed new inventions. So if we want to, as we talked about earlier, this kind of inventing or constructing that the challenges that come end up creating something new. So uh, with uh, um, how people discuss barbecue, whether it's like this assumption that because it's a comfort food, it has to be unhealthy. um, When at the same time, as we're seeing with kind of the health food discussions, whereas yes, a salad is probably healthy, but if we're avoiding processed foods, if things don't have a lot of like preservatives or additives, um, then that can be healthy as well, just in a different way. And whereas some of the restaurants in the book, they did like they added a salad um, or something like that, or more just kind of straight vegetable side dishes. Um, Others, most of the concern over this kind of health trend and how it related to barbecue arose with um, the meat itself. So whereas pork is seen as being like a leaner meat or a healthier meat than maybe beef is, um, it still has a higher fat content, especially depending on the cut of pork that is used. And we see this with the variation Um, in regions where for some it was easier to say that they're already using the leaner cuts of of pork so their barbecue is already seen as kind of meeting this new healthy line versus others that maybe they didn't use the leanest cuts of beef or of pork but they argue that that's where the flavor is coming from so why would they want to completely have um, this kind of healthy barbecue if there's no fat or fattest flavor, as they would call it. Um, but instead, they can talk about that their pork comes from a local farmer. And they know how it was raised. They know how it was treated. Or that all of their vegetables came from a local farmer. And nothing was frozen. Nothing was canned. Um, so health can be in terms of like, calories and fat content, or it can be in this kind of knowing where food comes from and this um, very almost critical wave of not necessarily of being critical of the industrial agricultural system as we know it today. Um, And that was one of the things that I think surprised me a lot in this piece. And then um, I've continued to look at in my research is that it's really not uncommon for these Southern restaurant owners and purveyors to be critical of industrial agriculture. Um, 
and health was one of the ways that this came up, especially in barbecue, and how heritage breed pigs were seen as um, being a better alternative when possible. Well, the next chapter, you focus on some of the specific economic changes kind of connected to industry um, and legal changes that affect how barbecue producers, uh, especially like fire building codes uh, about smoke um, and regulations on pork production. Can you describe some of those changes that have made traditional barbecues more difficult and the response that producers have have had to deal with instead? Um, How do they keep convincing consumers their product is authentic without the smoke? So that that was one of the things I found found very interesting as this project kind of came into being was how can you have barbecue without smoke? And many of the oral histories said this, and even the pitmasters who lived in areas where they were no longer to have, no longer allowed to have open pit smokers said it. So um, one of the solutions has been technology. Um, as usual right now, but the invention of electric smokers. So it's not the same. It's not an open pit, but you're still getting smoke. Um, You're still getting kind of the same, or at least they argue it's the exact same taste as you would get from an open pit. It's just, it's much safer. Um, You don't have to worry about fire in the same way that you do with an open pit. And electric smokers um, meet city required, like these city guidelines or laws for um, the smoke production or the open pit. So that was one of the most common ways that um, they talked about kind of navigating this change. Um, And then in terms of agriculture, the um, most of the restaurant owners in the book Um, have been in operation or learn these techniques from previous generations, Um, some in their family, some not. But it wasn't uncommon for them to kind of recall the days where if you were going to barbecue, then either you raised the hog yourself or you went to a local farmer who did. And where that's still common, and North Carolina still produces a majority of hogs, Um, that are consumed, but because of changing laws, especially USDA and the rise of industrial agriculture, it's very difficult for a small-scale farmer to continue to meet the changing guidelines um, for the USDA to be certified and to get that little stamp that shows that the hog was processed in a USDA-approved facility. Um, So that was one. And unfortunately, there really wasn't. Some worked with local farmers who were able to grow at a scale where it was still still financially solvent for them to grow hogs and have them processed in the, like, USDA way so that they could be sold to restaurants. But for most... um, they're just the small farms just aren't there anymore. Uh, the exception became that even if they couldn't buy the pork locally, they could at least buy the vegetables. Um, which, of course, with vegetables, you don't have to worry about the same um, 
restrictions that are involved in um, animal production. And like, of course, organic has their own restrictions and guidelines that have to be met, but just general vegetable production doesn't. Um, So it's not like the amount of money that a farmer would have to sell to be able to justify growing, like raising pigs is very different than a farmer who's going to just raise vegetables. And for most restaurant owners, if they couldn't source the pigs locally, at least they could still get the vegetables. Um, even if the um, as the laws kind of changed over time and over generations, because with the smokers, they could be grandfathered in. And several of the restaurants in the book were um, for years and then recently had to come up to new codes or still grandfathered into the original law that allowed open pit smokers in their city. Um, but there is no grandfathering in when it comes to um, how pork is processed. Um, so that really wasn't an option. But being able to still say that you source things locally was important to those um, pitmasters. It just became, if they couldn't source the pork locally, at least they could source the vegetables. So in the next chapter, you describe the commodification of the South and sort of the rewriting of Southern history to make it more palatable for outsiders and tourists. Uh, The tension in this chapter really seems to be between authenticity and profitability or an an issue of scaled growth. Um, And also in the chapter, you describe some of the challenges that come with celebrity endorsements, expanding into chains or mass producing sauce and other products for national distribution. Uh, Can you explain how these profitable moves might be seen as a challenge to authenticity? So I think the sauce is probably the best example. Um, So when people, one of the um, justifications behind just um, bottling sauce to sell. Um, so not necessarily large scale um, production, but just having the sauce to sell so that someone who is visiting an area or a restaurant can take it home. And in terms of tourism, that's a way for a tourist to come and literally making the South palatable in a way that can then be taken back to wherever they're from and they can tell a story to their friends when they're pulling that barbecue sauce out about the trip they took to Eastern North Carolina and had vinegar pepper sauce for the first time or white barbecue sauce in Alabama. And they can show their friends what the sauce is. But it was when, and so in that case, in that situation, the sauce, even though it's bottled, is still very much authentic. But if that sauce were to be mass produced at a scale where suddenly it's appearing on the shelves of a local Kroger, then it's almost too big anymore to be authentic. Um, So this idea that for authenticity to work, it needs to be, it needs to be original, it's sincere. So something about it needs to be feel real to the consumer and when we look at mass-produced products, even though they're still real products and it may be the exact same sauce that was featured in that restaurant, when the context of it changes and suddenly it can be bought anywhere, what made it unique um, isn't the same thing. So that like that uniqueness that made it different um, starts to fade away when it becomes too available. 
were too mass produced. Um, and one of the drawbacks that the chefs talked or the pitmasters talked about was that if they started to expand or franchise, then it would take their their own personal attention away from the restaurant or the customers or the community that they really cared about. And they didn't know how they, for, for many, the benefits of franchising didn't outweigh the possible risk to the location that they were currently in. I want to tell you an anecdote about a celebrity endorsement and get your thoughts about it. (laughs) So uh, once I was in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and I was looking for Delta tamales, uh, and I found them at a place that was clearly a Quiznos pretty recently. It still had all the like Quiznos stuff on the outside. Uh, And there were two or three women inside with all of their stuff in foil containers. And they were out of tamales, but they still had the barbecue rib tips. So I got those plate of rib tips that were the best in my life. But the story is that there was a, <laughs> the daughter of one of the, the owners was trying to convince her to like get Guy Fieri to come visit. And the mother was like, do not send that man this way. I do not want that kind of attention. Uh, and so I wonder what you, what you think about that as far as the pitmaster stories that you heard. Like, What is the balance between wanting to be profitable and get attention and also maybe kind to keep it small because I need it to be that way. Um, I think at least in in um, some of the celebrity chef endorsements did come up, not not very frequently um, at all, but there was a couple that mentioned it. And one of the things that was interesting, once they had it, none of them really regretted it, but. Once that attention started, they suddenly had to kind of change their scale of production. And in most cases, it was very, very quickly. Um, so I think it really just kind of depends on what the I guess, goals of the restaurant owner or the pitmaster themselves are. Um, and for others, um, Rodney Scott, who won a James Beard and has been featured on various cooking shows and competitions, and as judges and competitions and everything, um, despite all the attention he gets, his restaurant is very, it's relatively small. When they run out, they run out and they run out pretty frequently, it seems. Um, and that's fine. And the, he's not going to change the scale of his restaurant because of the attention he's getting. Um, but for others, some chose to change the scale dramatically. Um, some the idea of running out of food very quickly was a huge was seen as a huge problem. So I think it really just depends on the um, the kind of restaurant or the pit master themselves. But I don't know if it's so. I think when it comes to if it's a challenge to authenticity, I think it really depends on um, if the customer who because again. What one person sees as authentic may or may not be what someone else sees. So, for example, Rodney Scott winning a James Beard for some people may automatically put him in the not authentic category because he's got too much attention now. Um, It's no longer the little hole in the wall place that only they knew about. That doesn't mean the food changed. It doesn't mean anything about the restaurant changed. Um, 
but just the attention itself can make make some consumers see a change in authenticity, even if nothing actually changed. Well, in the last chapter, you kind of pull all these strings together about how, you know, barbecue has had to change from its traditional state to meet these these challenges, these changes in environment and economy and consumer behavior and consumer expectations. Uh, and you talk a little bit about the future of barbecue. So preview for our listeners, what will that look like? Will Do you think there'll ever be a, a point in time when factors change so much that barbecue can't be traditional or that um, producers will have challenges to authenticity that they can't meet? What do you think about that? Um. I don't, I don't think food will ever change so much as that it's not going to be authentic. It's now would maybe like earlier generations look at what we have today and say it's authentic, maybe or maybe not. But these changes, at least in most cases, happen relatively gradually, that it's not like they're abandoning the recipes or they're still holding most of the pitmasters are still holding on to something that they can claim is like goes back to the origins. They still have an origin story that most of them can still claim. Even if they've had to change their pit or change the farmers they source things from. Um, and I think part of it too is leaving future generations room to change the business models. And whereas we don't necessarily see that with barbecue per se, but um, so I live in Michigan now and there's a great example of a, um, it's basically a fruit farm that's been in the same family for generations and generations. But each generation has added something new to the model. And one added a U-pick, one added a bakery, one added wine, and the newest one is added cider. So it doesn't mean that their products are any more or less authentic than they were before, but each subsequent generation that has come into the business has gotten to do something that is unique to them while still being unique to what that model looks like. So for barbecue, it could be changing the desserts or adding... Um, there's a couple examples from the book where they have like mashups, like a barbecue spaghetti. Um, these different things that are still very much unique, even if they may not be um, as traditional as they once were. But the changing of the, I think the uniqueness will always be there and is what makes barbecue so special is that it has been able to change continuously but still keep kind of true to what makes it so good. Speaking of these mashups and these changes, we're especially interested in the idea of barbecue interacting with cuisines outside the U.S. Um, at, or the U.S. South as a failure of authenticity. So you talk a little bit about the Top Chef example of the unsuccessful combination of Asian and Italian cuisines with barbecue. And then you write, Often the failure of impression management within food culture exists at the intersection of foodways, traditions, media representations, and the usage of exotic ingredients. But I wonder, is there room for barbecue to keep growing and changing, especially with the Southern diaspora and growing immigrant populations to the South? Um, 
And if these new ingredients and techniques are added, will it need to be called something else other than barbecue? Or can you predict that maybe producers will find ways to manage this? So I, um, so I think in the Top Chef example specifically, um, it's the, it's not that we, so, okay. <laughs> um, the changing kind of demographic representation of the South is, is changing and it's changing very quickly. It's no longer the kind of black and white South of the past, if it ever actually was. Um, indigenous populations have been here forever, predating colonists. Um, the, there's been an influx of um, Latinx populations, especially in North Carolina, um, the Delta Tamale example. Um, when you say tamales in Mississippi, people think you're crazy, but it's actually a traditional dish there. It may not be the same um, tamale that you would get in Mexico, but it's still a tamale. It's just been adapted to a new place. And I think the where the media comes in is it almost forces these mashups that then seem artificial versus with the tamales and the delta it's not a forced mashup it's kind of this diaspora of people moving whether it's people moving to the south or moving out of the south and they're taking their food with them but in some cases whether it's as um, Asian populations moved to the South in large numbers in the 60s and 70s, and it was just difficult to find things like a quality soy sauce outside of major metropolitan areas. So they had to make do with something different. Um, and it doesn't mean that what they ended up creating is any more or less authentic. It just is a product of place. And I think that's where kind of the understanding of Southern foodways as moving like moving forward into the future is this link between the past but also its ability to change while still maintaining those kind of stories and traditions that made it unique but without by while still making it possible for other people to come in and bring their stories to um i think in the sense of the top chef example it failed because um at least in the TV rhetoric version, um, it failed because it was too much. So it wasn't just that they changed or they added an exotic ingredient. It was that they added too many. So it's almost, you can deviate and you can expand, but if you go too far from the original, then is it a deviation or is it something new? And I think that's where, that's where the impression management breaks down is it has to be true enough to the original that it still recalls the original dish without going too far away. So the same thing with um, like elite cuisine, with the deconstruction of dishes and the molecular gastronomy, it only works when it still reminds the diner of the original dish. If it goes too far away, then it just seems to be this kind of artificial um, representation of what the dish was supposed to be that's more kind of form over substance when we start to add foams or powders or any of those things that 
it's not that they're wrong. It's just it's no longer what the diner's conceptualization of that dish should be. Right. So throughout the book, you we're going to get a little personal. You include anecdotes <laughs> of experiences at barbecue restaurants that are personal and reflective of your authentic barbecue experience. Um, and I'm just curious if throughout the research process, your definition of authenticity or your impression of authentic barbecue changed from where it started. So I think probably one of the things that changed the most as I wrote this book was that as a customer or a consumer eating in a restaurant, we know so little about the chefs themselves. Um it's like even if it's a restaurant we go to a lot, we're probably more likely to know the front of house staff or the waitress that we always have or the bartender that we always have than we are to actually know who's working in the kitchen, who's actually producing our food. Um, whereas I don't know if that necessarily changed what my definition of barbecue was. It made me much more aware of the varieties of barbecue Um not just on a regional scale, like learning that there's a white barbecue sauce um, or learning that there's a black barbecue sauce in Kentucky, which were two things I didn't know when I started this project. Um, but there's, there's so much variety, even within the South. And it's really easy to miss a lot of that, especially if you just stick to kind of the more tourist-friendly or tourist popular destinations. Um, some of the best barbecue restaurants aren't going to be found in your major metropolitans. They're going to be found in the same way that boiled peanuts are found when you get along the coast. Like they're usually these little hole in the walls that are just as good as your fine dining restaurant in the heart of Charleston. But are a lot easier to drive by because the outside isn't quite as appealing. And yet the stories that these pitmasters and chefs have are so important and completely resonate with this idea of the modern self. Well, my last question is always, what other projects are you working on? But I know for a fact that you have another <laughs> book pretty closely done, right? Tell us uh, about this next project. So, yeah, it, it's done. Um, well, it's out of my hands, at least. Um, I It was pretty much my COVID project. Um, I spent all of the stay-at-home order working on it. And it, so it's looking at Southern food again. It's still with the same archive from the um, Southern Foodways Alliance. But this one goes a little different. In that this one, whereas, as we talked about earlier, um, as much as gender and race are talked about a lot in barbecue, those stories didn't come up in this specific project. Um, my next book uh, looks into this a lot more specifically. Um, race and gender class a lot. But whereas this book focuses just on barbecue and a lot of variation comes in the location, um, my next book really takes a broader snapshot of Southern Foodways and talks about farmers 
shrimpers, um, restaurant owners, not barbecue in this case. Um, and um, winemakers and country ham producers. So it takes a, it's more of a, how do all of these purveyors of Southern food create very much these, this craft food, but it's not the craft food that we're used to seeing on, um, when most people talk about like this kind of craft food movement, it's New York, it's LA, um, it's these major metropolitan areas with college educated, um, typically men who just don't want a desk job. So they're now a craft bartender, um, or some other purveyor of craft food. And what this project looks at with a lot more depth is that it's not just major metropolitan areas. It's not just people who don't middle-class people who don't want a desk job. It's so much broader than that. And the people who make craft products are so much broader and more diverse, but what craft is, is so much broader than that. Um, It's easy to talk about a craft cocktail, but are we looking at who the farmer that grew the mint that went into that craft cocktail, or are we just looking at the bartender who's putting it together? And that's what um, my forthcoming book is um, really trying to focus on. And that one is called Craft Food Diversity, and it should be out uh, May-ish, I think is the current plan. (laughs) That's exciting. Well, I always say like, let us know when it comes out and we'll have you back. But like, now that I know when it's coming out, (laughs) we'll definitely have you back. (laughs) Great. Well, today we've been talking to Caitlin Bird about her new book, Real Southern Barbecue, Constructing Authenticity in Southern Food Culture. Caitlin, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening. (laughs) 